Good morning. Uh, my name is Will, and I am the uh, campus minister for RUF, the denom our denomination, the campus minister at Austin Peay State University, and I love coming up here and preaching. Um, we are at the beginning of this sermon series um, where Pastor Richard and I, we are bushwhacking our way through the book of Judges. Um, our text this morning is in Judges chapter 2, if you want to turn there. And while you're turning there, it's on page 201 in your Bibles, if the church Bibles. As you're turning there, let's remember, or maybe for the first time here, some context for what we're about to read. Let's get into where are we in the big epic story that the Bible is. So God's people, the Israelites, they were enslaved to the Egyptians. They were enslaved in Egypt, and God rescued them and brought them out with a mighty hand and miracles in order that they would trust and worship and enjoy him. And you can read about this in the book of Exodus. It's a very exciting story. And so then he brings them through their new leader, Joshua, after Moses dies. He brings them into Canaan, this land that would be their everlasting possession and their home. And the wicked people that lived in Canaan, they could join up with this enterprise if they wanted to. But a few did, but overwhelmingly they did not. So they had to leave. And so God started to drive them out slowly as the Israelites slowly came in and took over the land. And as they served the Lord, this land, which would be called Israel, this land was going to be a place where justice and righteousness and flourishing would just run over the top. And it would run over the top because this heart of the people were committed to this God of righteousness and justice and flourishing. And they would be a blessing to the whole world. People would come by Israel and they would say, who are these people and who is their God? This must be a wonderful place with a wonderful God. And then they would come and worship the God of Israel. And then eventually from this people would come the Savior who would save the whole world from sin and death and misery. And everything was going to be right and everything was going to be good. That was the plan anyway. It's not what happens to Israel. Um, at this, this should have been the beginning of a new dawn, of a new era for them. But it quickly devolves in this book into what is arguably the darkest time in Israel's history. It becomes as bad as it should have been good. The author of Judges in these introductory chapters, these first two or three chapters, explains what happens after they enter the land of Canaan. Let's start reading in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. This is God's word. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. 
and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their own judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers, and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test them by in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount, on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath, they were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters took to themselves for wives. They took to themselves for wives. And their daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Whew. The grass withers, and the flower fades, and the word of the Lord lives forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your living word would work in our hearts this morning, that we would be set free from idols, set free from these, um, these things we think are gonna give us life, but they actually enslave us and bring us death. Show these places to us and set us free this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So um, has anybody seen this show called Andor? Anybody seen it? Like two people maybe, three people? Um, Andor is the best Star Wars show out there ever, I think, in my opinion. And I've been rewatching it recently. Um, and it came out like nine months ago. I'm already rewatching it. That's how good it is. But it's, uh, it's a Star Wars show about how the rebellion came into being. If you're like my wife and you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, you don't know any, anything about Star Wars, the rebels, they're the good guys in this universe. And the evil empire, they're the, obviously the bad guys in this universe. And Andor is this origin story of how the rebellion came into being. It's about all these small, unimportant people and, and even these big, important people that are serving this much bigger, greater cause. They're all living and fighting for something much bigger than themselves. Freedom from the evil empire, which is ruining the whole galaxy. So I'm gonna just spoil a little bit of, it, of this, just a little bit, okay? Um, but halfway through the first season, there's this small band of rebels, 
and they've just pulled off this huge heist against the empire. They've stolen millions of credits or dollars or whatever the currency is from the empire. They've given the, they've given the empire this bloody nose. And as they're getting away, one of the rebels starts to talk about stealing that money that they've just stolen from the empire, stealing it from the rebels and running away with it and betraying the rebellion. And he's offering to split the money with the main character whose name is Andor. And they have this little conversation. He wants Andor to help him out. And Andor says to him, so, no rebellion for you then. And the traitor guy says to him, no, I'm a rebel. It's just uh, me against everybody else. So I was struck by this little exchange because I was in Judges and I thought, oh, Judges. It's a good example of what's happening in Judges. This guy says, yeah, I'm a rebel. I serve the rebellion, but at the same time, it's me against everybody else. I'm on my own in the end. At the end of the day, his commitment to take care of himself, to serve his tiny, singular self, overrides his service to this thing that is bigger than them all, the big cause of the rebellion. He's become a rebel to the, rebe to the rebellion, and everything soon goes dark for this traitor character. Um, in our text, God has led his people similarly into this heist of the promised land, Canaan, with this bigger, greater cause of blessing the whole world. But on the whole, they all end up, there are some exceptions, but on the whole, they all end up basically serving their, them, their small selves. And everything goes dark. So the big idea of this text comes down to who are we going to serve? This text says that we should serve the Lord alone above all else. Here are our three points. We should serve the Lord alone above all else. And here are our three points. Because one, the Lord blesses you as you serve him. Number two, idols destroy you as you serve them. And number three, the Lord pursues you when you destroy yourself with idols. These are all reasons that we should serve the Lord alone. So let's look at our first point. The Lord blesses you as you serve him. Let's look, look with me at verses six through eight. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So this text begins by remembering this first generation that enters the land. You might know this, you might not know this, but the original people that were saved from Israel, uh, saved out of Egypt, those, that generation died. And then this is their children that are coming in to take over. So their children having grown up that are coming in to the land. Um, so this is their grown children led by Joshua. And this Joshua, this Joshua generation that enters the land, it says in verse seven that they had seen all of the great work that the Lord had done for Israel and they had trusted and served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So there's this like initial invasion into Canaan and there's a couple hiccups, but by and large, it's a renowned, re resounding success. And they come and they trust the Lord and they serve him and they do what he wants and he blesses them in abundance as they're doing this. So for example, um, they, pass over the, they pass through the Jordan River. God stops it up, similar to how they, they were saved through the Red Sea, stops up the Jordan River, and they pass over into the Promised Land. 
God sends hailstones down onto their enemies while they're in a battle, and they don't even have to really do anything. They're just watching God pummel their enemies for them. At one point, the sun miraculously stands still so that they would have some more time to, to, uh, to rout their enemies definitively, to completely rout their enemies. The sun stands still to give them a little extra time to do this. Uh, there's even more than this. But this generation served the Lord, as our text says, and God blessed them and gave them success. They were unstoppable. They were absolutely unstoppable because they were on his mission doing his things. In order to be a blessing to this world, as God's agents, he blessed them, he equipped them, he blessed them, he helped them. But notice that um, this is how God always works, okay? He saves and then he provides. He'll save you and then he equips you and gives you things to do. This is how God always works, okay? Uh, before we do anything, before we do any turning from sin, he saves us. He didn't save us. He doesn't save the Israelites based on any of their goodness. They just trusted him. They had faith in him to save, in him to save them. And he saved them and gave them things to do. And after you're saved, he gives you all these great things to do for him. This is what uh, Paul says, looking back, he's the whole of uh, the big picture of the Old Testament people of God. It could be summed up, and I think I have this text up here, in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. This is, God saves you first, and then he gives you things to do. Look, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is, this is your life. <laughs> this is our life. This is the life of God's people. We're saved not based on anything we do. We're actually saved while we're sinning against him, but we're trusting in him. And then he sets us up. He enables us. He blesses us to do good works, to love this world, to love one another. God saved Israel out of bondage to slavery in order that they would trust him and do his business being a blessing to the world. And God gave them success. He equipped them. He gave them success as they were doing it. And with this success came lots of great stuff. They got lands. They got possessions. They had houses to live in that they didn't even build. They had farms to farm that they didn't even like, have to set up. It was all just there ready for them. Um, immaterial things. He gave them like assurance of his protection as they trusted him. Contentment with what they had whole healthy relationships and communities. These are all the blessings and benefits of trusting and following him. And the people were to even, the, all these things that they're given, they're even gonna use these even further to, to bless the world. That's what he's gonna use, they're gonna use this for. And let me say this, I think this goes against um, just an idea that's prevalent among Christianity at large. It's probably always been this way. Um, the idea that God exists to be my like genie or something, that he exists for me to get me out of the trouble I got myself into, to help me out. And in the end of the day, the whole, God is, God is there to make my dreams come true. God is there to make me happy. He's there for my success. He's to help me succeed at my stuff for my mission. It's actually the complete opposite. He saved us to make his dreams come true. <laughs> He saved us to succeed at his mission, so to speak, to obey his rules and serve him and his ends. We are his instruments. We are his servants. He is not our genie servant that we pull out, ask if we can have this, and then put him back away. Uh, God gave them this mission 
to take the land of Canaan for him. That's what they were saved for. So this land would be a place where the whole world could meet this God and worship him and glorify him. It's all about God's glory in the end. These are, these are all given to us, you know, our time, um, our resources, our power, our relationships. These are all given to us to serve him with, to do what he wants us to do with these things for his ends and his purposes. That's the purpose of his people. That's your purpose. That's our purpose. And the story of this generation, this Joshua generation, is a great example of how God blessed, if you, if you watch the story play out, of how God blessed this people as, as they served him. We should serve the Lord above all else because he's gonna bless you as you do it. It may be physical things, it may be immaterial things. He will bless you and equip you to serve him if that is your heart's desire. So that's our first point. Our second point is that, is the opposite of this, okay? So we should serve the Lord alone because idols destroy us as we serve them. The Lord blesses us, idols destroy us. Look with me at verses 10 through 15. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, Joshua generation, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So this new generation, the children of the Joshua generations comes up and it says that they do not know the Lord. Either they don't know the facts of what happened to their grandparents, probably more likely they have not taken it to heart. So they abandon the Lord and it seems like almost immediately begin to serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now we'll get to those Baals and Ashtaroth in a moment, or the Baals we'll talk about mainly. Before that, it's good to have a little bit of an understanding about idolatry. This is kind of skimming the surface of idolatry because that's what they're doing here. So God made you and God made all humans with this switch that's always turned on. In fact, there is, actually there's no offsetting to this. It's just a switch. It's a switch that's always turned on. So it's not really a switch, but the switch is a worship switch and it's always turned on. We are worshiping creatures. We are made to worship. Um, you can't not worship. It's in your nature. Now, when you think of worship, you might be thinking of singing a worship song, a song in worship. That is not what we're talking about. When we talk about worship, when the Bible talks about worship, what it's talking about is your life coming to be ordered by, your life surrounding, uh, sur being surrendered to and revolving around something else. In the Old Testament, that word for worship, you know, when uh, Moses says, through, God says through Moses, uh, let my people go that they may worship me. He's saying, it's the same word, that word worship, that's translated worship, also be serve. So serve and worship in the Old Testament, same thing. Here's the thing about worship. Here's the thing about serving. You can't stop doing it. You can't stop worshiping and serving. We are created for our lives to revolve around, to be surrendered to, to, uh, to worship and to serve 
the Lord God. And when we do this, when our hearts are aligned that way, things go well. Things go very well. But idolatry is when we come to worship and serve anything else, something else. Something else that the creator created. That is not the creator. We were made to worship the creator. But something else becomes the thing that your life revolves around and you surrender to this thing and you serve it instead above, above all else. Um, the apostle Paul, many years later, was talking uh, about the fundamental ways that humanity has come to be in the misery that we find ourselves and he points to our worship. This is where he points to. He points to our worship, our service. And he writes this. He says, they, humans, humanity, this is how we naturally are. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul is saying that the fundamental issue when it comes to idolatry isn't that we just do bad stuff because we're bad. He's saying there's a deeper issue under our idolatry, under our individual sins that flow out of idolatry. It's that we've taken created things in this world and we bow down to them in our hearts and put them in the place of God. Imagine that your, your heart, imagine your heart has a throne. There's a seat on it. It's the throne of your heart. What is it that is sitting at the, at the seat on the throne of your heart? Is it God or is it something else? What functionally rules you? What, what leads you to make the commitments that you do? Leads you to say the things you do and to spend your time on this? What is it, who is it, that's on the throne of our hearts? Idolatry is when we put anything except Jesus, except God, on the throne of our hearts. We take created things from this world, we bow down to them, and we put them on the throne of our hearts. These things that we're supposed to worship God with, these things become the things we worship instead. So now this thing gives me security. This thing fulfills my life. This thing, whatever it is, it gives me the affirmation I need. It gives me the sense of being loved and wanted. In, in short, these things make us feel safe. These things give us a sense of safety. And this thing that, I, that promises me ultimate safety becomes the unquestioned master of my time, of my resources, of my body, of my relationships, of my commitments. All those places that the Lord God is meant to rule us and keep us safe, we give that authority to something else, to another person, another thing, and some other thing, and it always goes bad. It will always go bad. Any idol is going to lead you to being plundered and alone. <laughs> And notice what is at the bottom of all this. I am serving the idol, Baal, Ashtaroth. I'm serving this ultimately because I don't feel like I'm safe. It's too terrifying to imagine not being secure, not being fulfilled, not getting affirmation and love and to feel wanted. Uh, Pastor Richard spoke on this last week. He said something like, the places you are most insecure, the places you are the most scared, the places that you are the most desperate, this is fertile ground for idol worship. This is the scary, this is the most, this is where you are going to find your idol and make one. Now this brings us to the Baals. 
uh, the Baals, so they were the local gods of the Canaanites that were there. And God had told the Israelites, get them out of here because I know that you're going to fall for, that you're going to fall in love with the Baals. And that's what happens. The reason that you would turn to the Baals, these local gods, is because you didn't think that God was going to meet your needs. You didn't think that God was going to keep you safe. Maybe it didn't seem to be raining enough and you're getting a little bit worried. Or maybe a husband and wife really want a son to continue their family line as, as a culture at the time. Or maybe there were rumors of like rumblings of distant um, enemies beyond the hills and you're getting a little worried. These are all the places where God wanted them to just trust him that he would take care of them as they go about his business and bless them. He's gonna bless them despite what it might look like. So for example, if you needed your crops to grow, what would you do if you were in Canaan and you got a little worried and you thought you might have to turn to Baal? Well, they, don't, they would have learned this from the people that are around them, but you would pay money. You go to, the, the, uh, to Baal's temple, you pay money, and you'd hang out with one of the sacred prostitutes that was there. And what this is really weird, I know. But Baal would watch on, and it was kind of creepy too. Baal would watch on, and he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm in charge of fertility and stuff. I should probably get on that. And he would go out and make, the, make it rain and make the crops grow. It's really weird. <laughs> That's how it worked. I love getting to know about Baal worship this week. It was great. And if things ever got really bad, if you got in a really bad situation, Baal was always there to be really desperate to accept your child as a sacrifice. This is what it looked like to worship Baal. So the people abandoned the Lord to serve these local deities, the Baals, because they thought the Baals, these are gonna give me security. These are going to keep me safe. This is gonna help me. I'm not sure if God's going to. And it's very obviously dumb to us, right? <laughs> but if we lived in an agrarian society, in an ancient agrarian society, and life and death were constantly on the line, and it was so, life was so obviously fragile, I could see that we could be tempted towards something like this too. But today our, our idols are a little bit more subtle. Apart from God, what are you tempted to find ultimate safety in? Um, romantic relationships, here's a couple of examples that will probably being on somebody out here. Uh, romantic relationships, this is gonna keep me safe. Comfort, this is gonna keep me safe. Success at our job, success in your school. What, what is it that's, that leads you to sinning, right? Being popular, um, being liked, how you appear to other people, either your personality or your body. The success of our children can so easily become an idol. There's just an infinite number, right? We're idol factories. We love to make up all kinds of idols. Any created thing can be your idol. And notice that these are all good things. Right? These are good things that we have, good created things that we're supposed to use to serve the Lord, but instead we put them up here and now this is my God. This will save me. And you know what happens when you give yourself to these idols? Um, let's say, for example, that your children being a success uh, or looking good in front of other people, looking good in front of the world, if this becomes your idol, <clears throat> what happens if you really give yourself to this? First, you're gonna ruin your children Right? They're going to grow up being what? Anxious, um, angry, maybe enslave, them, enslave themselves to success or looking good. But then when they get older and they're sick of your crud, they're going to say goodbye to you and they're not going to want a relationship with you because they, they see that you're only using them for, them, for, them, for yourself. And then what, what, how do you end up? Plundered. You end up desolate. Your sorrow, we're going to sing Psalm 16 in a few minutes, but 
your sorrows multiply. Those who worship idols, their sorrows multiply. Or what if career was your idol? This is going to make me safe. This is going to make me whole. What happens when you really give yourself over to a career? <clears throat> well, if, that's your, if this is the thing you must have, you are going to cheat. You are going to lie. Your, your integrity is going to be ruined because this is the number one thing I must have above all else. This is going to keep me safe. It makes sense to cheat and lie. And then you're going to distance yourself from friends because you need to spend all your time advancing yourself and your career and your grades. Um, relationships are going to go out the window. Um, you're relating, to, um, spending time with your spouse, with your children, it's going to go out the window. And where are you going to end up? Desolate, ruined, your sorrows multiplied. You can see how this, the same thing goes for romantic relationships, for comfort, for your perfect image. Safety at the end will elude you as you seek these idols. Safety in the end will elude you. It was all a lie, and now you're all alone in a destroyed life. In Judges, the gods of these, the Canaanite people, the gods of the Canaanite people and the Canaanite people, they're all like, they're intricately like together, so much so that when they give themselves to the gods like Baal, what are things? That when they give themselves to gods like Baal, it's the people of Baal that turn on them and destroy them and plunder them. In our text, God responds to all this that's happening by withdrawing his blessing. It says in verse 14, he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He, just, he stopped defending them, stopped protecting them, and he let plunderers plunder them. The plunderers that they're, they're friends, they went to worship with. Now, why would God do this to his people? First of all, he's letting them experience the consequences of what it looks like to run after idols. He's letting them experience what those idols actually deliver, which is nothing. He's letting them experience this so that they will turn to him. That's the first thing. He's actually pursuing them in letting the idol, letting them have what they want. He's, he's actually pursuing them in this. But second, the obvious thing is that Israel is not pursuing his plan to bless the whole world. Instead, they're polluting it with prostitution, uh, child sacrifice, which is probably just the most obvious examples. Why would God bless them when they're not pursuing his plan? God is not going to bless and supply those who are acting as his enemies. That would make no sense. The Israelites have completely lost the plot <laughs> right at the start. They were put there for a purpose, and they have decided not to pursue that purpose. They have decided to pursue the purpose of their own destruction. God is not going to help them in this. Why would God help them? So God gives them, all he does, all God does is he gives them what they want. They're idols, along with all of the consequences of not trusting in him. Um, but the amazing thing here is that God doesn't just abandon them. If, if, have y'all read the book of Judges? Uh, I if you haven't read it, I guarantee there will be points in the book where you're going to say, God, please destroy this people. Blot these people out. If you've read the book of Judges, you know you will have to. It's a Will Cody guarantee. Try, try, test me. <laughs> but instead, he pursues them when they abandon him for idols. And that's, this is our last point that we should serve the Lord alone because the Lord pursues you when you abandon, them for, abandon him for idols. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. 
they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So after the Lord gives his people up to these idols that they are pursuing, and they groan and they cry for help, he would hear their groaning and he would send them a judge. Now, if you, if you don't understand what the book of Judges, what a judge is, the book of Judges is gonna sound very boring to you. Uh, when you think of a judge in the Bible, think less Judge Judy and more Judge Dredd. Okay, if you're familiar with those references, okay? Uh, the judges in the Bible did not wield a gavel. The judges in the Bible wielded a sword, right? They were, they, think of a judge with a literal sword in his hand, wielding justice. This is what these judges looked like. Uh, this is what their role was. So when the people of Israel came to see the mess that they had gotten themselves into, they would cry and they would groan and God would hear them. And the Lord would raise up the judge from among the people to lead them in battle against their enemies. And there's some pretty crazy battles and that's the whole rest of this book is about, is all these judges he keeps raising up over and over and over again. But, and this is the most frustrating thing when you read the book, there's a fundamental problem with this people. God would raise up a judge, save the people, and as soon as the judge died, they would, of old age or whatever, they would go right back to their idols and worship them even harder. And then the whole cycle, and they'd worship them even harder. And another cycle, and they'd worship them even harder. But despite it, over and over again, God sends these saviors, judges, to save them. He never gives up on them throughout the whole book of Judges. It gets, it gets worse and worse and worse. And he is relentlessly, um, he is relentlessly faithful to this people. Now, what do we learn about, the, what do we learn about human nature uh, in this intro and in the rest of the book of Judges? In the face of like, look, 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 just imagine, it's, like it's earth-shattering deliverance from Egypt. Miracles in the wilderness, God fighting battles for them, God sending these judges. This is evidence upon evidence upon evidence that God is trustworthy and that he cares for you, right? But still, the people served idols that loved to plunder them. Why did they keep doing this? Even pragmatically, this doesn't make any sense, right? This doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, why is it that we are so tempted to turn to idols as well, to be plundered by them. Uh, we've been reading the Jesus Storybook Bible in our small group Bible study in RUF. If you've not read that book, it's great. And the writer of that book says it really well. Um, if you're serving an idol, serving a created thing, this is your problem. Underneath all the problems, this is at the heart of your problem. I think I have a slide for this. Um, this is from Genesis 3. And it says, this is a, a quote from this book. The terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to everyone of God's children, God doesn't love me. This is the basic lie. This is the lie behind idolatry. God doesn't love me. I need to go find something that's gonna take care of me. The big problem that these people had was that they did not believe that God cared about them. It was a total lie, right? Despite all the evidence, the mounting evidence. Now you tell me, what's the antidote to idolatry? If these people were turning to idols because they didn't believe that God cared about them, that God was gonna keep them safe, and they needed to, an idol to protect them, 
What do they need to know? That God does love them. God does care for them. God does keep them safe. No matter what it feels like in the moment, God is keeping you safe. He's keeping you and protecting you. And we know that they should know enough. They should know this. But we should know it even more because he sent not another judge, but he sent his son, Jesus. If you ever wonder, does God love me? Can I trust him? Am I safe? You know, when I read the book of Judges, I'm like, God brought these people out, destroy these people. But when God saw the people in Judges, what, did, what, what happened to him? His heart broke for them, right? He sent them saviors. Eventually, he sent his son, Jesus. What's crazy is the one that we were meant to serve all of our days with all of our faculties, he came to serve us. It's nuts. While we were his enemies, while we were um, just running rampant after our idols. What would it look like this week if your fundamental basic reality was the Lord loves me and I am safe? What if your basic fundamental reality that you can preach to yourself from this text is that the Lord loves me, I know it because he died for me. The Lord loves me, I am safe. What kind of new things could you begin to do? What kind of old things do you not need anymore if this is true, that the Lord loves me and I am safe? Let's ask God to show us. Let's pray. Father, would you, uh, let, would you let this permeate every area of our lives that we are safe and that you love us and we know you love us because you sent your son, Jesus. We know that Jesus loves us because he died for us. We are safe and secure. We don't need idols that plunder us. We have you. We pray you would show us places in our lives where we're not trusting you so we can trust in you and enjoy your blessing. But it is all to your glory and for you. And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.